talking about living the extraordinarily blessed life, that is supposed to be the normative state of existence for a child of God. You should be extraordinarily blessed. Look at Psalms 1, 1 through 4. I've read that so many times that I must still take the time to read a little bit of, of it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, understands that the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful. I'm in a hurry, okay. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Parallel companion text to that, Psalms 92, 13. Those who are planted Planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. The word flourish that is used in these passages that you just saw on the screen comes from a 13th century French word that means to blossom like a flower. Floor, F-L-O-U-R, the French of uh, uh, F-L-O-U-R. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. The word for F-L-O-R. I'll get it right in a moment. The French word for flower. And it means to grow vigorously, to make steady progress. It literally means to boom or to explode, to prosper, to thrive, to fly higher, to expand. And what we're talking about here is that the whole essence of the gospel message can be summarized in a few statements. It really can. The gospel message is, is that is this, that man was created in the likeness and an image of God and was made to prosper and have dominion and rule in the earth, never lack a thing. But sin entered and man failed. It's what we call in theology the fall. The gospel is about redeeming man not only from the fall spiritually, but from the effects of the fall that impact every one of the seven areas of your life. And so you and I have been saved because of what Jesus did. But don't make the mistake of believing that just because you got saved, everything immediately has now gone back to the way it was in the garden. It didn't, and that is because you spent your previous life being programmed and indoctrinated into the principles of a fallen world. Amen. And what has got to happen is you've got to be reprogrammed by the Word of God. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now are we the children of God. Look at somebody and say, we're the children of God right now. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Amen. I'm a child of God right now, but baby, you ain't seen me in my best yet. Amen. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is. When he is revealed, it is unfortunate that most scholars have attempted to understand that passage of Scripture from the eschatological perspective. That's a big theological word that just means from the perspective of the last days. When it says that he, when he shall be revealed or that, that to them means he's coming in the rapture. But there's nothing there that says that. That's strictly the interpretation of some people. As they have read that, they said that's what he's talking about. Can I give you an alternate perspective? Could it be that when he is revealed to us and we see him as he really is, that then we become like him for we see him the way he really exists? And what I mean by that is we see him in his word. 
When you come into the kingdom of God, you don't really know who God is. He's the big guy up in the sky and all of that kind of stuff. But people have all kind of attitudes and ideas about who they think God is. Calcutta, India, I mentioned at the first service, first time I was there, a taxi driver, and you've heard me mention this, taxi driver had on the dashboard this, 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 this thing that had the head of somebody in one hand and a sword in another and a, I think nine arms and his foot was on the chest of his decapitated victim and I asked the taxi driver, who's that? And he said, oh, that's my God, that's Kali, Kali. And I said, you worship that? And he, uh, he said, yes, I worship that. And uh, worship, that's my God. I said, why do you worship Kali? He said, because it makes me get revenge against my enemies. It's very strong. And I thought, well, I go to church, but that's not usually why I go. Amen. And, but that's why he went to worship is because he got vengeance against his enemies. The point that I am making is to him, that is God. There are all kinds of things that are God to people. Depending upon your indoctrination, your religious upbringing, even in Christianity, many Christian people believe that God's like a motorcycle cop hiding, as I've said before, behind the billboards on the highway of life, looking for a chance to flip on his blue and red light and pull you over and write you a ticket that sends you straight to the judgment seat of Christ. That's who a lot of people think God is. But as you study the Word of God, He is revealed, and you become like Him. Amen. That is the process of growing into His nature is an ongoing one. Based on these verses, I have been teaching a series, Planted, Fruitful, and Flourishing. I'm now talking about flourishing. Last week I talked about flourishing because I'm learning to think like God. I'm going through this re-indoctrinational process, and I'm learning to have the old stuff challenged and be willing to allow it to be replaced by what the Word of God declares is truth. Amen. And you've got to be willing to let go of some stuff or you'll never embrace truth. Today, I want to talk about flourishing because I'm learning to love like God. And so I want us to bow our heads. Father, I pray that you will speak a word to us now that will open our minds to receive from you and at the same time cause our eyes to see who you are in reality. God, we see you in your word, so speak to us from your word today, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. A couple of Sundays ago, before <clears throat> I missed last Sunday, I gave you a, a construct that you can view life through and how your life develops or declines would be another way because some people's lives are not developing. They're going the other direction. I want to show you why. Because you do have the power to tweak this process, this construct. You can either be a victim of it or you can be the master of it. Situations determine your thoughts. And by situations, that means your circumstances, your needs, your desires. And as I've pointed out, you cannot help but have your thinking affected by what you go through. If you're single and you meet a beautiful young woman and she catches your heart and grabs your emotions, you're going to think about her. That's just all there is to it. You walk out of a doctor's office with a bad report, you're going to think about it. You can try not to, but you're going to. And on the other hand, they give you a pink slip 
uh, you're going to think about that too. You're going to, you, you win the lottery. You're going to be thinking about that. You're going to be thinking about paying your tithes when you do too, I know. Because I'll be thinking about that. Amen. And I'm just telling you, circumstances affect your thoughts. But your thoughts determine your emotions because if the situation is negative and your thoughts become preoccupied by things that are negative, your emotions are affected. Out of this is where we see depression occur. Your emotions, on the other hand, determine your attitudes, whether you have a joyful attitude or one that is sad or morose or one that is explosive and volcanic. All of this comes out of the thoughts that came out of the circumstances. Your attitude, on the other hand, determines your self-talk and your speech. And your self-talk and your speech actually are indicative of what your attitude really is like. I can listen to somebody talk and so can you. And what people say about somebody else often tells you much more about them than it does about the person they're talking about. Amen. And on the other hand, your self-talk determines your behavior or what you do. Your behavior determines your habits because all a habit is is behavior repeated enough times that it becomes ingrained. And your habits determine your lifestyle because all lifestyle is is habits. And then your lifestyle, watch it, now we're getting down to where we live, molds your character. Your character, on the other hand, determines your destiny. These are all intertwined, inextricably intertwined in such a way that you cannot separate them. And so uh, you can't, as I said, change your circumstances. I want to point that out again. I'm just, this so will be on the same page as I move forward. You cannot change your situations. You can't. You can say, I don't want to lose my job. You can, uh, I rebuke that pink slip in Jesus' name. You can do all of that. It's not going to change your circumstance. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Amen. And you're going to have some stuff happen in the course of your life. And don't misunderstand me, good and bad. And so the way you affect your life or take control if things are not going correctly, don't try to go back up to situations. Change the way you think about them. Amen. Stop thinking it's the end of the world. Stop walking around believing that God hates you and right on down the line. And that will change every one of those things underneath it. And the reason that this ultimately is so impacting is I said your lifestyle determines your character and your character determines your destiny, which is the summation of your situations. And so ultimately it is a cycle that brings you back to your situations. How do you change situations from negative to positive ones? It all starts at the first point, change your thoughts. And this is what the Bible is all about and why Paul spent much of his time talking about the way we think, the renewing of our mind, and all of these other kind of things that we read in Scripture. Now, that is because ultimately it will change our character. And our character will determine whether we live the extraordinarily blessed life or not. And before we can understand what our character should become like, now move on to where I want to be going today, we have to know, since we're becoming like him, how do we know what we should be striving for? What's the goal line? Where are the goal posts? What, what is our, our, our effort directed toward? 
you have to first know what God's characteristics are like. And as I've already pointed out, people have all kind of conflicting ideas. To some, he's Uncle God. To some, he's a benevolent Santa Claus. To others, he is an ogre that sits on the throne waiting to squash people like a bug. Just There's so many different things about who they believe God is. John said we would be like him when we see him. You can, you're going to be like what you see <clears throat> and determine of who you think he is. But if you've got the wrong image of God, your image of self is going to reflect the inconsistency and the error in who you presume or think him to be. And therefore, we have to see him, John says, as he is. I should first mention that the characteristics of God are not the attributes of God. There are primarily four major attributes that you hear people talk about in church that describe God. Even these grow out of his characteristics, but we'll get to those in a moment. These four attributes all begin with a prefix omni, which is Greek, which comes from the Latin omnis, and it means all. And so you put the prefix omni in front of a word, it means all. And in this case, one of those is omniscient, which is all-knowing. God can never learn anything. That's because he already knows everything there is to know. You're not going to go tell him who he is. You're not going to go tell him what you're going through and think he's going to be surprised. I hear people talk like that. God, go over to 13th Street, 1202 13th Street, and bless George. Oh, wait a minute, God, that's 1203 13th Street. Like God's going to go to the wrong address just because you sent him there in your prayer. He knows where George lives is my point. Amen. He is also fully aware of what you're going through. He is omnipotent, which means he has all power. He is also omnipresent, and that means he is everywhere at the same time, and there is no place where he is not at presently. He is also omnificent. It is this last attribute, omnificent, that I'll take just a moment to look at before I move forward. I love, um, I love the, the, the English language. I love the art of communication. And I have degrees in how people learn because this to me is what I am called to do. And, and so I may bore you for a moment. Please don't let your eyes glaze over. But if we have any school teachers, they'll be happy to hear me tell you this, that omniscient is actually a portmanteau. It is not a contraction. A portmanteau is when you take two words and put them together, and you remove some of the letters. You don't add an apostrophe like if you're doing a contraction. It is not a contraction. It's not taking do and not and removing the o and not and making it don't. It is actually creating a new word out of two words. It is a portmanteau. And omnificent comes from two words that, that combine omni, which is all, and, and, and beneficent, rather, which means all creating, kindly disposition toward, and doing good. So God is all good, and he is kindly dispositioned toward us, and he is the creator of everything good, and he does it all out of the goodness and kindness of his heart. Those are the four attributes of God. On the other hand, God's characteristics describe his character or his heart. The first characteristic is one we all know, and it is this, God is love. 
And when we talk about the character of God being formed in us, I told you I'm going to start talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It is the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives. Because each one of these that have to do with the fruit of the Spirit that Paul will describe in Galatians chapter 5 deal with some aspect of God's character being formed in us. 1 John 4, 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is, say it, is, say it, God is, is love. That's the first thing God wants you to know about him is that he's love. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so on. Very first of the fruit of the Spirit is love as well. As believers, we are called to live lives that reflect the nature and character of God. That means we are to love one another regardless of ethnicity, creed, social standing, education, wealth, regardless of what neighborhood you live in, what car you drive or don't drive. We are to love one another. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus went so far as to say a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Seems simple, but it's much more complex than that. It's complex, not because uh, we, 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 we need the help of the Spirit, which we do to achieve it. It's that, first of all, we don't even know what love is anymore. Amen. There are, so, there are all kind of things people call love. I'm going to get real with you here now. Amen. People talk about making love and they're having sex. That's not making love. Amen. Uh, let me just get really plain. Some folk are foolish enough to think you can go in a nightclub and find love. Y'all remember this? Put this up here. Amen. Some of you said, oh, I, I, I bet, yeah. There's some young folk growing up thinking that's where you find love. Reminds me of an old country and western song, looking for love in all the wrong places. You're not going to find love in a nightclub. Come on, you say, I, I, I'm unhappy you showed that in church. Your kids have not seen it in church. They've seen the real thing. Amen. I need to help somebody right now. In fact, I think Siri knows more about love than most folk do. I'm serious. I'm talking about the, 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 the artificial intelligence when you push the button on your iPhone and ask Siri, what is love? Listen, she'll give a better answer than most folk will. Siri, what is love? Let me think. Okay, here you go. What is love? An energy? A romance? Godliness? A challenging question foremost. Can it be that love is considered to be one of the most powerful forces in the universe that love is something we all experience? 
All need and are always looking for that love is God's greatest gift to humanity? Pretty important stuff you might think. But yet in today's world, love is, in my humble opinion, the most misunderstood, ambiguous and mysterious phenomenon of all time, relative to its importance. Why is this? Many reasons, but the number one is most likely science. Science rules in the current age of information, but science can hardly touch love. Literally, science does not play well with intangibles. Love does not fit into a test tube. You cannot see it under a microscope. Love cannot be touched, measured or quantified. Yet love is very real and extremely important. I believe that the true meaning and purpose of love goes way beyond romantic relationships. I believe that love is an amazing, life-changing and transforming energy that dwells within all humans and all living things. I believe that the energy of love, when deliberately applied in our everyday lives will heal and change the world in the most amazing and miraculous ways. I believe that love is God expressed in our world and that we are all unique expressions of this love. I believe that the subject of love goes much deeper and wider in scope than we were ever taught. I believe that loving is an essential life skill. I believe that there are many practical ways we can use this energy that can and will transform who we are and can be. I believe love is the energy that brings us together. I believe that loving is a way of life. I believe that a deeper understanding of this wisdom is greatly needed. What is the true potential of this magical energy within us? I believe that love is like a magic trick and we are the magicians. I believe that love will play a big role in the survival, well-being and evolution of humanity. I believe that love is my superpower. Ha ha ha. They don't call me a smartphone for nothing. <laughs> How many of you just found out your smartphone is smarter than you are? Amen. All kind of things out there that we call love. For example, you heard about the guy that wrote to a letter to Susan. My dearest Susan, sweetheart of my life, I've been so desolate ever since I broke off our engagement to be with that other woman. I don't even know what possessed me. I'm devastated. Won't you please consider coming back to me? You hold a place in my heart no other woman could ever feel. I could never marry another woman as wonderful as you. You are special. You are unique. You are beyond comparison. I need you so much. Won't you forgive me and let us make a new beginning? I love you so. Yours always and truly, John P.S., Congratulations on winning the lottery. Amen. Love. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, but we don't even know what we should be trying to get. And one reason, and the level we should be seeking to attain to, is that one reason is the Greeks had four words for love, whereas we only have one. And their four words described a whole number of things and different levels. These four words, each one of them represents a higher level of love than the one that preceded it. And it helps us grow in our understanding of what love is and how we're called by God to love like him. Herein shall people know that you are my disciples and that you have loved one for another, that you love them the way that I loved you, Jesus said. The first word for love 
is eros. It is a physical attraction where there is chemistry involved and where there is a desire for and an expectation of gratification. It has its basis in egocentricity. It means I love you because you make me feel a certain way. It's not about you're so wonderful. It's about I feel so good when I'm with you. It looks for what it can receive. It is about my happiness. It isn't even used in the Bible at all because that is not what God calls love. Yet it is what most people identify as love, including Will Ferrell and the other guy in the first clip from Roxbury, whatever it was, Night at the Roxbury, that, that movie, that clip, they're looking for something that they can get from the other person that gratifies them. Amen. And if not, most people are actually, even though it's not, the word is not used in the Bible, it is what most people actually refer to as being love in today's society. It's chemistry. Everybody tells you that's love. It's not. That's not what love is. It is this basis for a relationship and how someone feels about you that many relationships are founded upon. And without exception, listen up, balcony, ground floor, news bulletin, news flash, without exception, if you get in a relationship like this, you will feel used. Because they're coming into relationship with you for what they can get. How can you not feel used? Amen. That's why I said you can have sex with somebody and call it making love, but that's not love. And I want to tell our young men and our young women here, you need to understand that a relationship has to be so much more than just hormonal attraction. Come on, help me out, mom and dad. Amen. The second word is phileo, and it's affection or fondness or liking as in friendship. The city of Philadelphia gets its name from this word, and actually from the book of Revelation, the church in Philadelphia, it means a brotherly love. It's a higher love than eros because it is about our happiness rather than just my happiness. It is used a number of times in the Bible. God's not interested in this me, me, me kind of stuff, and so that's why eros isn't even used. Philadelphia makes it into the Bible, or phileo, because it is at least about mutual benefit rather than just my singular benefit. It is used a number of times in Scripture and always refers to a higher level of love than just using someone else for your own gratification. The third kind of love is storhe. This is a natural affection or feelings that grow out of one's own nature or ability to care. It's the love of family. It is the natural affection of a husband or a wife or even Yes, the love you have for your dog, that storehe, amen. This level of love is the first level that actually talks about commitment and covenant. The other two do not. 
Eros and phileo love, you can love somebody without being committed to them. You can really like a person, their personality, for example, and, and yet not be committed to them in the long run or in covenant. The storehe level asks that you at least begin to make commitment. But the fourth level of love is actually the one that Jesus is referring to when he talks about herein shall men know that you're my disciples and a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another and that's agape love. This is the kind of love called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the person that is loved. It is completely unselfish in that it is all about the other person and not one's own gratification or self-fulfillment. It is, in a word, God's love and what the scripture says when it says God is love, it's that word right there. Amen. It's unconditional. This love is given even if the person is unresponsive and never ever acknowledges the love given to them. It is a love that is, that, that, that is given rather the person is unkind, unlovable, and unworthy. It is given even if there is no returning of the love or reciprocity of feelings. It desires only the good of the person loved, even if it is not reciprocated. The word agape literally means to welcome, to entertain, to love dearly, to be well pleased with, and to be contented with. You say, how can I love this person when they're doing so many things and this and that? And the same way God loved us, when we were doing so many things that we should not do. It's this level of love that we're called to. And it is on this basis that the Father could look down from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, thus defining what agape love is like. It's also the love that we read about in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can I hear somebody in the building say amen? It is the love that Paul talks about when he said, if I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Amen. The love of 1 Corinthians 13. If I have gifts of prophecy and a word of knowledge and, and I do all of these great things but I don't have love, what's he talking about? Is he talking about eros or is he talking about phileo or is he talking about store? Hey, no. He's talking about this love right here. The love of God. I, he is saying, will not profit anything unless I have become a conduit through which God's love can be poured out to reach a lost and a hurting and a dying world. Amen. It's this love that is the reason Jesus could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is also the reason why so many people in relationships end up getting wounded and hurt. Let me help you out. If you're single, listen up. I'm going to give you something that you need. People say all the time, how did they, how, how could somebody do what they just did? My God, I thought they loved me. I'm so disappointed. You don't love me. Oh, yes, they do. 
They just don't love you with the kind of love you thought. They love you with one of those other words. It is our misfortune that the English language uses one word interchangeably when the Greeks felt the need to have at least four. Amen. Amen. And so somebody can do you wrong and you say, how could they do that? It's because they didn't love you with agape love. Listen up, young folk. Before you walk into a relationship, you make sure that this person is not just, well, amen. They're not just drawn to you by chemistry, hello, or the shape of your body. They will use you and play you like a drum and you'll say, I thought they loved me. And they'll say, I did. Well, they're talking about two different kinds of things right now. Hello, someone. Real love endures. Real love stays the course. Real love doesn't give up and walk away. Amen. Amen. And like I've said before, you heard about the guy? He said, concerning his wife, when I met her, she had an hourglass figure. Since that time, all the sand has run to the bottom. Amen. And her response was, yeah. And look at you. You're, you've got chest in the drawer disease. Amen. Your chest is dropped into your drawers. It happens. But when you love one another, you don't get up and walk away. I don't even like, Jerry and I will have been married 49 years in just a couple of months, and I don't even like to hear people talk about, oh, and she turned 40, I'm going to turn her in for 220s. You're not wired for 220. It's going to fry your sockets is what's going to happen. Burn you up. They're going to put you in coronary care. Amen. Real love is love that endures. It's love that makes a commitment. It's love that stands the test of time. It's love that loves even when the person is not doing everything that you think they ought to to please you. Amen. Amen. And we've got a whole world out there that doesn't know what love is anymore. And like Boudreaux when he was dating Marie. Amen. He called and said, Cher, I love you more than my heart can stand. I love you bigger than the sky. I love you so much I'd fight an alligator to be with you. I would swim that Gulf of Mexico to be with you. I would wade through the marsh field with cottonmouth snakes to be with you. I'd go into the swamp and I'd fight the biggest, baddest old bear I could find to be with you. And if it don't rain, I'll see you Saturday. Amen. That's where a lot of people are. That's not the kind of love we're called to. 
The difference in these types of loves is probably more clearly seen in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 21, when Jesus rose from the dead. The disciples had gone back to fishing, and those who were other things like tax collectors and so forth, they had also gone with them. And they fished all night, and Jesus appeared on the shore of Galilee. And he said, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. And he said, cast your nets onto the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast the net, singular, and they caught so many fish, the net was breaking, and they had to actually paddle to the shore to pull the net up on the bank because the net would have broken had they tried to lift it into the boat. And Peter, who was the big fisherman, when he saw the fish, he put it together. Two plus two equals four, and remembered the fishes and loaves, and he turned to the others, and he said, it's the Lord dove into the water and swam to the shore and there fell on his knees before the Lord. The other disciples came, pulled up the boat on the, as it crunched on, the, on the, the shore and started unloading the fish, pulling them out of the net and Peter is counting them with the rest of them. One, two, 47. And Jesus asked a question, Peter, do you love me? And Peter looks up and said, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. And goes on counting. And Jesus asked him the same question again. Sure, I love you. And Jesus asked him the third time. And the big fisherman pauses and puts down the fish and looks up at Jesus and said, you know I love you. And we don't even get what's going on here. Because we've got one word for love. But what Jesus was saying was, Peter, do you love me with agape love? And Peter was saying, Lord, I love you with phileo love. Jesus was asking, do you love me with all of your heart like God? And Peter was saying, I love you like a friend. There is a point in the Christian believer's life where we have to move beyond Christianity as a spare tire or an option in our lives, which unfortunately is where it is at with so many. And we've got to make him not only the main thing, but so far out in front, the main thing that nothing else ever rivals it. Amen. You see, people say, God created me to worship him. No, no, no. He had angels to worship him him. Every day there are angels that cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God wanted somebody to love him. That's what he wanted. And if you love him, you will worship him. Amen. You will worship him. And what Jesus was really saying was, Peter, you've got a love problem. You're wanting to sing what a friend we have in Jesus. When you ought to be singing, falling in love with Jesus is the best thing I've ever done. There's a difference. And we have a lot of Christians sitting on church pews on this Sunday morning. Here today in this building as well as elsewhere in our city and across our nation and the world. That love God, but they've not yet reached the level of love where it's die, sink, or swim. Where it's total commitment and covenant. Where it's all about him. And tell me if it isn't true that many believers today are still at the arrows level. I love him because I'm what I'm, I'm getting out of him. I love him because of the benefits. I love him because of how he blesses me. And what we're called to do is go beyond that. 
Amen. In fact, Matthew 27, uh, 22, the, the, the lawyer came to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And I'm, I'm done. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. And this is the first and the great commandment. And do you know the word that he uses there? It's not eros. It's not phileo. It's not storhe. It's agape. The, you don't, don't even begin to obey his commands until you get the first commandment down right, which is to love him with love that is unconditional and wild and crazy and fanatical and never gives up and believes all things and hopes all things and keeps on persevering. Now back to what Jesus said, and I'm done, because this is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the same word that is used in Galatians. Paul didn't use the other words. He used this word. And so you may feel a little warm, fuzzy feeling when you give a little something to a charitable cause, but that's not love, because God didn't give a little something to the world. He gave everything. He lived his life for a, a single reason. Christ came. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. You say, that new commandment, I, yeah, I got that. It's to love one another. Wait a minute. Did it ever occur to you that that in itself was not even a new commandment? Look at the book of Leviticus 19.18. Way back yonder in the wilderness, God had spoken through Moses and said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's not a new commandment to love one another. That was not even what Jesus was saying. The new commandment was not to love one another. It's how you love one another. And all of a sudden, Jesus just raised the bar a whole lot higher. Because we've got to love the way God loves. And this is why, okay, I'm going to say some things and I'm done. It's an election year, and as always, I'm careful to never promote a particular candidate. But can I speak honestly? Can I? Some of you act like you're tentative. Can I speak honestly? Amen. I'm going to, whether you let me or not. I just need you to know that. While one of the candidates running may or may not be a, make a little better president than another, the problems are so great that frankly and candidly, none of them can fix this broken world, not Hillary, not Trump, not Sanders, not Cruz. It is beyond all of them. They'll all promise, and one or two might be able to do a little bit better than some of the others could, but compared to where we are and what needs to be done, I'm reminded of an old meatloaf, meatloaf song from rock and roll days. Too much, too little, too late. Amen. Can't fix this. You know what we need? We need the church to be baptized with the fruit of love. Instead of the church being filled with people that are hating, be filled with people that are loving. Yeah, but you don't understand. I do. That's why Jesus used that word. It is regardless of the circumstance or what's been done or how unqualified the person may be that you're being asked to love. It's not about them. It's about you. Can you love somebody that 
is absolutely not worth it. Amen. That's the kind of love we're called upon to manifest. And okay, now I'll get back to this whole thing about why don't we see more of the power of God in our midst. Because your character determines your destiny or the circumstances or situations. When we don't have the character of God, what right do we have to ask God to demonstrate His power in our midst? We can't walk into a hospital and say, be healed of cancer. And miracles are those things that happen only once in a while. And prayers get answered on occasion. But what God's really trying to do is form in us His character. Because when we have His character, we look like Him. When we see Him, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And then all of a sudden, the world looks at us and says, Hmm, doesn't look like the same old church anymore. Looks like Jesus now. And everything in life starts lining up and circumstances start changing. Because the church that looks like God is the church that walks in the authority and power of God. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless, how strong. It shall forever endure the saint and sinner song. God, bring us back to those days when our hearts are filled with love.